0: Father, we come before you desiring to know your will in all things. We know that your word contains wisdom, wisdom beyond our years. It is the wisdom of eternity. And we ask that as we face problems, trials, difficulties, persecutions, whatever they might be, we ask that you would provide for us the wisdom from your word. And we know that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in your eyes and that the world looks at your wisdom as foolishness. But we know where the truth belongs and where it resides. So, Father, we ask that you would instruct us, teach us, bring us on to full maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, chapter 20, we left off dealing with some extremes, and there are some extremes in chapter 21 as well. We had Jesus going to the cross he explained that to his disciples, and that's pretty extreme, telling somebody, well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. And the disciples, not even really paying attention to that, according to Matthew chapter 20, they immediately hopped to this idea of who's the greatest. Can we have a couple of seats on either side of you, Jesus, when we come into your kingdom? They were looking for a position of prominence and power, that place of authority and honor and Jesus turned it right back around on them to the other extreme and said, no, the greatest in God's kingdom needs to be the servant of all. We're not supposed to seek after these positions of authority and prominence. If we're supposed to be in a position like that, God is the one who places us there. Other than that, all of us are supposed to have the attitude of being the lowliest servant inside the household. And in the case of Jesus in the time that he was in Jerusalem there and in the nation of Israel, the lowest part, uh, the lowest position in any household was the one who washed the feet of visitors who came into the house. And that's what, of course, Jesus did for his disciples and he told them to mimic that behavior and then we see the other disciples they got kind of irate they were hot under the collar because the two disciples that wanted these positions of authority like they were sorry they didn't ask it first and how dare you ask for that it should have been ours because i've done more miracles than you and they had this argument in the other gospels of who is the greatest in the kingdom and of course that is the antithesis of what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to act and then we come to this triumphal entry where we have rejoicing everybody is just like yeah blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna hosanna in the highest and they're they're just having a great time they're cutting down palm branches and they're laying those in the roadway jesus shows up and he's riding this little donkey there but the other extreme to that is he's weeping and he's not just weeping but he is sobbing and i'll get into that a little bit. And so these extremes are kind of going on. You'd be the servant, or you'd be the greatest in the kingdom by being the person in position of authority and prominence. Jesus goes to the cross, and they could only think about how great things could be if they were just in those kinds of positions. And so, with all of these things, and there's more to follow with this, like the extreme uh, incident where Jesus goes into the temple for the second time and he clears it out. When was the last time you went to the swap meet, made a whip, and started driving people out of the swap meet? They would come and arrest you is what they would do. Or if you went to a Christian event and they had tables set up in the foyer somewhere and people were selling things and you walked in there with a whip and you started cracking that whip and getting everybody out and say, we're here to worship the Lord. We're not here to sell stuff. If you did that, you'd be arrested. But that's what Jesus did. And of course they did want to arrest him. But all of these things happened for a purpose, and God had and still has a plan for showing us these things. And by the way, our perspective begins when we're born. To look back on this stuff, and like when Daniel existed, Daniel was given the vision of all the kingdoms that would come with King Nebuchadnezzar and going on from there. But it had not been realized yet when King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel and what took place then. But it was all in the future. We've had monumental shifts in power in our world. The world has changed over and over. There have been literally billions of people that have existed. And all our focus is on is the now. We don't look back and we don't see what has taken place. And Jesus' triumphal entry, that was a benchmark in history. That was like the hinge that turned everything for the good. And sometimes we look at it like, oh yeah, Jesus, meek and mild, riding on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem. And the entire spiritual world was turned on its head and our salvation was also Dramatically changed as far as how we view it and how we obtain it. Where the Jews, they misconstrued what was going on. The Jews thought simply, well, if you just follow the law and you bring your sacrifice, everything's good, you're a child of Abraham, and they had misconstrued, misunderstood what the scripture had to say. And we've done the same thing today. Even though we don't look back very often and see what they did, We need to look back and see the errors that they made and make sure we don't repeat them because we do the same thing. We think, well, if I just pray enough, if I go to church enough, if I just give enough, if I just serve enough, then God's going to be pleased with me and then I get to go to heaven. And it doesn't work that way. The triumphal entry speaks completely against that. And we're going to get into this triumphal entry here in a minute. But we had the road to the cross, the request for control, the irate companions. And after all of that, Jesus had a heart of compassion for blind Bartimaeus. And we kind of closed last time with that. Now, Jesus is our example. And so we're to seek the same things to die just like he did. That's why he came here, not to seek the position of power or authority, to be the servant of all, not to get irate at anybody else if they succeed in something, and also have compassion on everyone. Now we're picking it up in chapter 21, the triumphal entry. In verse 1, chapter 21, it reads, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs him, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And of course, this is to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 and this is the first time that Jesus allows people to recognize who he is that he is the Messiah and he does receive worship at that time and you have to understand how many people were there Uh, if you've been to Jerusalem you know this but if you haven't been as Jesus was coming from Bethpage he would have to go down the Mount of Olives and and this valley, the Kidron Valley was there, and then it starts to go up again on the other side. And there's this road that you take to go there. It's there today. And Jesus would have been on the donkey going down in that path. But, and, and it's not a big area. Uh, you can see the walls of the Temple Mount area. It, it, they're not very long. A couple of football fields is all it is. And there were probably 2 million people in Jerusalem at that time. Have you ever been to Disneyland on New Year's? (laughs) I've been to Disneyland on New Year's. When we were there once at the Pirates of the Caribbean, there's this bridge that goes over the Pirates of the Caribbean right there. Patty and I were going across the bridge, and we actually came to a standstill, and we were shoulder to shoulder with everybody else who wanted to move. And we, we actually just stopped because there were so many people now Disneyland is bigger than the temple area that you have in Jerusalem and in the temple area and the surrounding area there's about two million people in Jerusalem at this time and so Jesus is riding on this little donkey and he's going up to the temple area and there are people close on either side and they're lining the street they know he's the Messiah there's a big uproar That's going on there. Did you just see the pictures of the protests in Russia? The 50,000 people that were outside the Kremlin. They were shoulder to shoulder out there. And that's how it would have been back then. So Jesus is coming up. Others are grabbing palm leaves, laying them down. They're going, what's going on? Jesus, the prophet, he's here from Nazareth. He's come down. And everybody goes, hey, did you hear that? And they start yelling. So everybody comes running to the area. It's just kind of mayhem. What's going on? Shouting is just going at its peak and all the things that are being said to Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, and in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so the disciples, they did just what Jesus said. They brought the donkey, in verse 7, and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them, a very large crowd. I think that's probably an understatement. But a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, just what I said, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so Hosanna, you know, that's a common English word we use all the time, isn't it? It, Sometimes we start speaking Christianese. You know what Christianese is? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Maranatha. Hosanna. You start doing that out on the streets and people are going to say, ho what? And they're not going to understand what you're saying. Now they have heard probably the uh, word hallelujah, but we speak... Sometimes we speak in such a way, or the concepts we relate are not discernible or relatable to those to whom we speak. And so we need to make sure we're communicating in such a way that makes the gospel attractive but truthful, that we don't iron it over, that we don't represent the gospel as something that it is not. For instance, uh, I was listening to Pastor Ray Bentley uh, this last week, and he was talking about giving the gospel. But you can't preach the gospel without the cross. I heard somebody else uh, speaking about this idea of homosexuality and in our community, and what what the uh, radical homosexuals are doing now is first they wanted to normalize same-sex marriage, which I think the uh, Supreme Court, if they haven't done it already, they're going to normalize the same-sex marriage thing. It's constitutional. Uh, That is just right around the corner. If it hasn't happened already, I haven't seen the news on it yet. But that's up before them right now. So how do you go and tell somebody that being a homosexual is wrong? No matter how you say it, it's not going to be accepted to those who want the lifestyle. But is it a loving thing to let them know Absolutely it is, to, to let them know the truth. And so we have to be aware of that. In the radical uh, homosexual lobby, they wanted to first normalize that. The second step, the second phase that they're going into is to suppress all language that speaks against that. It's already happening in the media where they're changing whether the superheroes are becoming gay or the television programs that are there or the movies. They always want to portray the gay lifestyle in a positive light. And so no matter how you tell somebody that this is wrong in the eyes of the Lord, and by the way, it's not just homosexuality. It could be drunkenness. It could be greed. Anything that somebody wants to be involved in, that is sinful if you communicate them or to them that the word says this is wrong, it's going to be received either with just plain opposition or disdain or even violence. And that's the next thing. All those who speak against uh, the homosexual movement, they're getting them removed from the YouTubes and the Googles and the Facebooks and it's declared as hate speech. And so, Uh, there's this desire to control the speech that we have but that doesn't relieve us of a responsibility to deliver the truth and we're supposed to deliver the truth in a loving fashion jesus shows up these people are saying hosanna in the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and who got upset about that they didn't like what was being said it was the pharisees and the sadducees and of course we know that the Leaders at that time told Jesus to make him stop, but that's in another gospel which we will get to in a minute. So this day, this triumphal entry where Jesus is going down the road from the Mount of Olives and he's going back up the road to the Temple Mount, he goes into the Temple Mount and he goes over to the money changers, and that's going to be future here. But why was this day so important? Why is this the linchpin, literally, of history and the Christian church and how we get saved? I need to give you some background I don't know if you guys can spell it out why this is so important, but it is important. But with this background, I'm going to give you a little theology, a little doctrine, an explanation of what's going on. So both Zechariah and Daniel prophesied about this day. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would present himself to Israel on the donkey, on the the colt, on a a full of an asset, according to the King James Version. And that's exactly what he did. But Daniel also wrote about this. Now, before we get into Daniel here, God is just and he always punishes sin. If he was a judge at a traffic court, he would deliver the sentence or the fine, regardless of who it was, equally all the time, every time. He would not fail to do that. Now the punishment for sin, and I think all of us know this, most of us in here, is death. That's why we die. It wasn't meant to be this way. God wanted Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they didn't do that. And because of that, death came through Adam, specifically Adam according to the scripture, but Adam and Eve both suffered death. And because of that, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, death came to all of us because we are their children. We come from Adam and Eve, and that same death comes to us. Now, in order to pay the price in God's eyes for this penalty, we must give up our life, and our life is in the blood. Our blood must be spilled. That's what Scripture tells us, that the life of an individual or an animal is in the blood. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was set up to speak of the ultimate sacrifice for sin, which was Jesus, and I think we all understand this. And the blood sacrifice was necessary to atone for sin in the Old Testament. What that did in the Old Testament, if you sacrifice an animal and you spilled the blood and you poured it over the altar, sprinkled the altar, if you did that, there is a covering, a big tarp that comes over the sin. That God doesn't look at you and see that sin because it's covered the only problem in the old testament if you committed a sin the guilt wasn't taken away you still held that guilt under the tarp when jesus came that tarp was removed the sin was washed white as snow by the red blood of jesus that's kind of metaphorical language there but that's what took place But the sacrifice of animals could never take away this guilt. Only the sacrifice of Jesus could take away the guilt. This is shown to us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. But for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have been stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is possible for the blood uh, of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for that to happen. And so... That was set up just to remind people you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Now, do we like that message? Well, What I say now is, yes, it is true. It is God's word. And if he's true and he's truthful and he's right, I like it. Does my flesh like it? Absolutely not. I want what I want. When I want it, and I don't want anybody to tell me what I can't have, when I can't have it, I am autonomous, I'm on the throne, end of story. And that's the world, right? That, this, the world has all these slogans, I did it my way. Right? <clears throat> I want to do it my way. That's the flesh. But God tells us, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, offer your body as a living sacrifice, crucify the flesh. We don't like to do that, and it's a struggle for our entire lives. It goes on until we die, until we get the new nature. Now, Jesus, he came, and he was called by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you remember Passover, now Passover would take place in the first month of their year, which is our March-April. It would take place on the from the 10th to the 14th of Nisan. On the 10th, you would have the selection of the sacrificial lamb and they would take that lamb. And by the way, this is all spelled out in the book of Exodus. And this was the 10th plague that took place when Moses was redeeming the people, the nation of Israel from Egypt, pulling them out of there and eventually landing 40 years later in the land of Israel. But the last plague was The lamb had to be sacrificed in order to preserve the life of the firstborn in any family. That was the curse. That was the plague that was to come upon the people. That lamb was to be sacrificed, completely consumed. And if it was not consumed, the rest of it was to be burned. In other words, it was to completely disappear. Jesus is called that same lamb, that Passover lamb that he is to be consumed. Do we not eat of his flesh by taking the bread and drink of his blood, by drinking the cup? That's what we do. And he is the type that is realized in the foreshadowing of the lamb in the Old Testament in Passover. So Jesus presented himself to be the actual lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And we are told this, again, by John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law that reminds us of our sin. Now, we are reminded of our sin and the forgiveness that we have through the communion, as I just described. So the Passover Lamb was the foreshadow of the true Lamb of God that would come and take away our sins and allow God to pass over us And not require our life. So he stood in our place to do that. It's like we're before the judge. He says, You're condemned to death for this action you have taken. And then Jesus comes in from the side and says, No, I'll pay the penalty. That's what he did. This is called the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. He stood in our place to do this. Now, this is leading up to the triumphal entry. He presents himself as the Lamb of God, the one who's going to go to the cross, he was there for the whole Passover week, he presented himself, came up from Jericho with the disciples, came from Bethpage, rode down on the donkey, he came over to the Temple Mount, presenting himself, and that's how we know, because the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Now every year the Passover was to be uh, observed by the Jews, but this particular year, it was going to be the final Passover lamb. As we just read in Hebrews chapter 10, year after year, a Passover lamb had to be given. Well, not this time. It's the final time it is going to end. And Romans chapter 5 verse 19 tells us that you know just as sin entered the world through one man, and back in verse 12, and death through sin, therefore all men die because death came to all men. Well, In that same way, Jesus, because he gave his life, salvation came to all men, through one man, to all human beings through one man. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many were made righteous. So you see how the first Adam caused sin to be pervasive throughout the whole human race? Well, through the second Adam, salvation was able to come to the whole human race. His blood was sufficient to cover anyone who wished to have Jesus be their substitute, his life for ours. Now, this is the gospel. This is what it is all about. Now, 1 Peter 2.24 says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And I've explained this before. If somebody wanted to come up and say, well, I choose to die for my sins, and then I can be resurrected to life. No, we can't be, because we are imperfect. God was perfect; therefore, the blood of Jesus was perfect; therefore, is a perfect sacrifice which God requires. We are imperfect. You guys know what Isaiah says about our our uh, works—filthy rags. You know, it's terrible. If you look at our works in God's eyes thinking that it's going to get us some merit, some merit, it doesn't. It doesn't do that at all. But Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for anyone who wanted to believe and accept his vicarious atonement. And since God requires that perfect sacrifice, Jesus was the only one who could do it. So Jesus presented himself to be the final Lamb of God who was able to take away our punishment for sin. Now, how much does it cost us? personally zero and see that's where we get involved in the works thinking that god is pleased with us for the works now he's pleased if we're good disciples no question about that but he's not pleased in delivering us some type of credit because of what we do in order to get saved it doesn't work that way the salvation has us doing works afterwards not leading up to the salvation and of course, this acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus, the acknowledgment of the substitutionary death, we will be saved if we agree with it. That's Romans ten nine and ten, and you guys know what that is. Romans ten thirteen: For all who call, call in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why Jesus presented Himself at the temple to be the final sacrificial lamb, to where we no longer had to have the sacrificial system and the Jews are looking to reinstall that on the Temple Mount. They want to build the temple. I heard the other day that if they started to rebuild today in four months, they'd start doing sacrifices. They have the plans ready to go. They have the implements. They have everything that is necessary ready to go. They want to build it. And by the way, that is also in fulfillment of prophecy. But it's not going to happen until the antichrist shows up so if they're all set to go and it's not going to happen until the antichrist shows up how long do we have Uh, it's right around the corner somewhere Uh, pretty quick so why do we call it the triumphal entry it's because jesus triumphed over sin and death that's why we call it the triumphal entry it is a time that God triumphs over that which sends us to hell if we don't accept the sacrifice. So what about Zechariah? Yeah, the, the donkey was there, the colt, the full of an ass was there. But then you have Daniel. Now this is crucial that we understand this. I, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> because in Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 this phrase is used, know and understand. God wants us to know this information and he wants us to understand this information. And this information in Daniel is related to the triumphal entry which was prophesied to take place. Now, every time I come to this in Scripture, I give you this portion and I I explain it to you based on the triumphal entry. Now, in verse 24... Of Daniel chapter 9, it says 77, some of your translations might say 70 weeks, but it's best translated 77s, are decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, 77s, I'm not going to go through a detailed explanation. You'll just have to trust me on this one because of time. 77s is 490 years. That's what 77s is. So, what Daniel is being told here is 490 years are decreed for your people and your holy city. What does this mean? Well, he names six things that this means. He goes on to say to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Those are the six things that are supposed to take place after 490 years have transpired. Daniel is older than 490 years. So what is going on here? In order to see everlasting righteousness brought in, Jesus has to be here. But it's been more than 490 years. What's the deal with that? Well, the 490 years has been broken up into sections it goes on to say no one understand this verse 25 from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild jerusalem until the anointed one the ruler comes there will be seven sevens which is 49 years and 62 sevens which is 434 years that equals a total of 483 years now these numbers if you want to write them in your bible just to kind of get this down, an idea of what's being talked about here. This is a prophecy of when the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Daniel is giving us a prophecy to the exact day when he will show up. Hundreds of years before it's supposed to take place. That's why the triumphal entry is so important. So this is the prophecy of what is known as the 70 weeks or the 77s. And the 77s have been determined for the nation of Israel until it all comes to an end. And that's for us as well. It is still future for it all to come to an end. Now, there are four possible decrees in the Old Testament that took place that could make us think, well, we start counting from this point, 400, this part, 483 years, and we have to know which decree it is. The first one was Cyrus made a decree giving Ezra and the Babylonian captives the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in 538 BC. Well, that's not the one. And this is listed in Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 5. After that, Darius made a decree giving Ezra the right to rebuild the temple. What was it? Almost 30 years later, he reissued the decree. That's still not the one. It's, if you look back at what it says, from the issuing to of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not to rebuild the temple. The third one is Artaxerxes made a decree giving Ezra permission, safe passage and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in 458 BC. That's also listed in Ezra. That's not the one. It's not the temple that is the prominent feature in Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. It is restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. Do we know who the guy is that restored and rebuilt Jerusalem? Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the one that showed up. Remember, he was the cupbearer to the king? And the king, he came into Artaxerxes, and he goes, hey, why are you feeling so down, Nehemiah? You're always so up. Because if you weren't up in the presence of the king, it might not go well for you, if you know what I mean. And so he was always up, but this time he was down. It's because he got word that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem had been torn down, and they were laying in ruin. And so he was motivated by the Spirit of God to go and rebuild this, and he asked permission of Artaxerxes. And, of course, it was granted in 445 B.C. We know this. We have records of this, that this took place. This is listed in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And so, until the prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Gabriel's message to Daniel was simple and striking. 483 years. That is 69 units of seven years that would pass from the time of the command recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 until the appearance of the Messiah, the prince. So Daniel wrote, The anointed one, the prince, Jesus, the Messiah will come in 483 years from this decree in Nehemiah chapter 2. All you had to do was count the leaders of the Jews. All they had to do was look at scripture and count. And it fell right on that day. Now, how do we know it fell right on that day? Well, I've mentioned this before. Sir Robert Anderson's Significant Work, The Coming Prince. This guy was an investigator for Scotland Yard. And what he did is he, well, from May 14th, 445 B.C., this decree that came from Artaxerxes, it's specific and it's not general, and it's based on a 360-day and one-third-day year. Now, we... Change our calendar a little bit. By the way, the Jewish calendar, if you look at that, they're in the year 5,700 something. We are in the year 2019. Their calendar goes all the way back. And so the way that they reckoned time was 360 day and one third day years is how they did it. And so this Sir Robert Anderson decided, I'm going to calculate that. And he's going to put all the the peripheral information into counting the days from when this decree was given in Nehemiah. And it turned out to be exactly 173,880 days from this decree that was given by King Artaxerxes. Guess what day that was? The triumphal entry. And so it was prophesied. Now, who can do that? I want you to prophesy where you're going to be in three years and one day. You can't even do it in three years. What about 173,880 days? That's hundreds of years. You you can't do it. And God did that. He did this for who? For us. That we would know the time of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And also for the Jews back then. That's why this is so important. He showed up. He was prophesied to show up. The Jews refused to recognize it. They rejected Jesus Christ and this is why he wept going up the stairs because it was so plain to them and they just, they wouldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Now, this is a fantastic thing that has taken place and by the way, nobody else can predict to this kind of accuracy what's going to happen as i just said three years in one day where you're going to be you have no idea we don't have any idea if we're going to be alive or if we're going to be in heaven or if we're going to be in the same place or in the same church we have no idea where we're going to be or what the world is going to be like in three and a half years and only god knows that and we know this from scripture Isaiah 44, 6 says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Isaiah forty six ten says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I give you this challenge. Look up any other religious work. See if there's any God in those other religious works that gives us exact days in prophecies. You will not find it. That is how we know that Christ is the one true God that's how we can follow him because we are assured. And that's just academically. You just do the academics. You just do the math of it and you find out, whoa, here's the evidence. If you presented it in a court of law, they'd have to say, yep, guilty of being the Messiah. That's the way it is. But we cannot go to any other religion and all these religions, they claim exclusivity. This is the way to get to heaven if you just do right. But see, ours is not doing right. It's believing right. Believing in the sacrifice that Jesus brought. This is the triumphal entry. That's why we can trust in it. But many of us, as Christians, we still remain in unbelief. And you might say, well, how's that? I went forward and, you know, I I said the sinner's prayer. I've said it several times just to make sure, you know, fire insurance. I just want to make sure I'm going to heaven. But we don't follow through with it. Now, the Jews, they believed in Messiah. They just rejected Jesus as Messiah. They were into their religion, is what they were doing. We can do the same thing. We get into our religion. We get into sitting in church. We get into not really believing the words of Christ. Like, could he come any day? I don't know. I'm not going to live like he could. (laughs) If you knew Jesus was coming tonight... Before I finish, what would you do? Oh, Lord, forgive me. What would you do? Would you change anything? Would you be more zealous? You know, as I've already described, and it's not in this Matthew's gospel, but Jesus made a whip, and it said zeal overtakes the Messiah. It tells us that in Scripture. Now, what is zeal? Now, this is what I want you to do. There's a person on your left and on your right. I want you to turn to them and I want you to grab their hand and shake it but be like a fish. Now do that right now. Turn to each other and just grab the hand. Just like a fish. Okay, now this is what I want you to do. I want one of you to agree to have a firm handshake and the other one a fish. Do it now. okay now when you meet somebody you know you only get one first impression right and if somebody comes up to you and their hand is just it's like a wet rag you put it into their hand and and you go what you know you just want to go down like that is that person that is shaking the hand like that are they full of zeal no, they're, they're a wet rag. You might as well just throw it on the ground. But the person who grabs with determination, the first impression you get is like, I like you. You know, it's like, I, I can tell you're a person of character. You have beliefs, you know, that, that type of thing. That's, I remember my father teaching me that. My father actually sat us, there's four boys in our house, and he sat us all down or stood us all up he goes, shake my hand. And I grab it. You know, I was probably five years old. Okay, Daddy. You know, I grab it. And he goes, now grip my hand. And I go, I can't. You know, and he would grip my hand. He goes, now this is how you're supposed to shake a hand. Now, some people, they do it so much that Takes your shoulder out of joint, but you know, just firm is the way you want to do it. And that means you have determination, you have some level of zeal, you know what you want, you know where you're going, you know how you want to present yourself to others. But as Christians, we go, eh. We, we, do you follow Christ? Eh, eh, yeah, eh. Yeah. We're not out there being the witness for Christ that we're supposed to be. Now, imagine somebody who's called a zealot. And that could have a connotation of being not so good. A zealot, like, ah, uh, you know, you're a little crazy. You're a little over the edge. You know, God says that those who follow Him are really a peculiar people. And so, uh, it's okay to be zealous for God. And you can be happy. And you can have a smile. And you can shake hands with determination. And you can tell them about Christ. And you can be bold. And you can be informed. But a lot of times we go, yeah, What's on TV today? And we get consumed with that. Or, What's on my phone? And you have to look at how many likes did I get? And that's our life, you know, especially this next generation. The next generation is such that if their phone slows down, what's they, wrong? they want to make sure it's going a lot faster. It has to be quicker. They demand more speed. We're going 5G and it's great. And, you know, it, that's the way the world looks at it. And yet we're not even that zealous as the young millennials and the Gen Zers or whoever it is are for their phones. We can't even do the same thing for Christ. And I, I'm, again, I, I don't do this to lay guilt. It's just to point the direction of how Christ wants us. Remember chapter 20, he was going to the cross. The disciples missed it. Who wants to be greatest? And the other guys are, why did you do that? It should have been mine. And Jesus is showing compassion. And Jesus was full of zeal. And I like that he went up to the temple. And that's a whole explanation in itself. I have a few minutes. Maybe i will get into that. So God predicted that this would take place. God predicted it. We can trust it. If we believe it, we get saved from the pit. That's the way it works. If we reject it, then we go to the pit. That's having faith in Jesus. There's no other name given unto men by which we might be saved. By the name of Jesus Christ is the only way we get there. That's why the triumphal entry was significant, because it was at that point that we're able to put our trust in him because he became the sacrifice. Now, has everyone here accepted the truth? Only Jesus can save us from judgment and hell. If not, I would say Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. And if, yes, you have done that, great. The second question I'd ask you is can we all explain what the gospel is and what the triumphal entry was? Could you explain it with scripture? Could you give it in a way that you are determined like shaking a firm handshake that you know that this is true because you know God is true because God predicts things that should take place. Now, if not, if, if you can explain it like I just explained it to you, I would say, go to a home fellowship. If you're not going to a men's study, go to a men's study. If you're not going to a women's study, go to a women's study. We actually have a discipleship program for the women with Juanita. You could see her and say. I want to be able to explain the gospel simply. The simple gospel simply. And we can all be at that point. But God raised us up in order to lead others. And, you know, some people have this idea. Well, it's the pastor's job. No, it's not my job. Scripture tells us that God gave us pastors for the equipping of the saints that they might do the work of the ministry. Now, not all of you are called to be pastors, but all of you, including me, are called to do the work of the ministry. I, I just happened to tell a guy yesterday, um, we were talking about work and how much we work and you know where we go. and I said, well, you know, Sunday, yeah, I work Sunday too. And he goes, really? What do you do? I, I, I work at the church. He goes, what do you do at the church? I'm the senior pastor. You're the senior pastor at the church? Yeah. And I know he was dumbfounded. And he, because I've known him for a couple of years. And, you know, progressively, he's a Buddhist. And progressively, we've been able to chit-chat. And so I'm waiting for the next time I show up, because I know he's probably going to ask me a question. So, what's with this pastor thing? Well, let me tell you. You know, I'll, I'll give him the gospel. And that's what we want to do. We are all supposed to do the work of the ministry. We are not simply supposed to say, I'll do the coffee. Oh, no. give the gospel. Show the love of Christ. Explain how you get to heaven. Explain how you live forever. Explain the triumphal entry. Explain how there are no other gods that know the future. And only God, the one in the Bible, does that. That's why he's exclusive. If somebody wants to challenge that, say, I'm up for the challenge. If you can prove to me there are any of the gods that know the future and any other works, any other religions, I'll become a member of your religion. If not, you become a member of my religion, my following of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. So we are supposed to not be limp-wristed. We are supposed to be firm and determined and filled with zeal. Now, it also, you know, I'm not going to go into the uh, temple where he clears the temple. I am going to go into this. Luke's account gives us a little more information about the triumphal entry. Luke chapter 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples because they were saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 40 of that same chapter 19, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I just wish they kept quiet. If you go to the Temple Mount, there is one stone up there that's four hundred tons. I would have liked to have heard that. Oh, blessed is he and then you'd have the little rocks at the top. They would have been. It would have been just a concert going. It would have been fantastic to see that if they just would have remained silent and the little pebbles jumping up and down, you know, praising God. It would have been just a wonderful miracle to see that, and that would have been fantastic to be there. But when you looked at Jesus, he was not happy. He was very sorrowful as he approached Jerusalem. And saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you encircle you and hem you in on every side, but they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Now this word weep or weeping, remember when Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus. The word there that is used in the Greek simply means to shed tears. When he showed up with Lazarus, he was shedding tears. You know, if somebody dies. Usually you get all choked up if they're close to you and, and it's hard to hold back sometimes. But when he was going up to the Temple Mount area, the word that is used there It means to sob or wail aloud rather than to cry silently. So as you saw Jesus, everybody is screaming, making merriment, laying these palm leaves down. He is sobbing, not just crying, not just tears. He is sobbing, going up because he knows that they are going to reject him. He knows he's going to the cross. Now, to close it out, this should have been the epitome of his ministry. It was probably the lowest point because he realized those who were going to perish as a result and how the people were going to be treated. The kids were going to be dashed, probably just like in Cambodia where they had grabbed the feet of the kids. I don't want to be too graphic, but I got to tell you the truth there. They would grab the feet of the kids And they would throw the skull of the baby against a tree. And there's a tree that's in Cambodia in one of the killing fields where they would do that. That's what the Romans did. And they would impale all the Jews. He knew that not only would they be lost for eternity, but also temporarily, they would lose their lives. If we're to be like Jesus and he is our example, we're to have that same compassion for those who reject the gospel. We're not to say, another one bites the dust and go on we are to look at them and say no you don't understand let me explain it to you more fully do you have time let me sit down with you i'd love to meet you anytime you just name it we'll work it out in our schedule i'll explain to you the gospel so this is our task know jesus christ know the reason for the triumphal entry know the reason for the gospel how we got here based on the history that we usually fail to look at. We are myopic, we only exist now, and yeah, you can get saved and all of that, but we are really not knowledgeable. We need to become knowledgeable. If we are knowledgeable, and the way that God can use anybody who sets their mind to know his word is involved in fellowship, is involved in prayer, is involved in the apostles' doctrine, all of those things that are talked about in the book of Acts. If we do that, God will use us. And at the end, he will certainly be pleased. This is my prayer for you. That you can die to self as me. It's my prayer too. We can die to self. We can live for Christ. Saturate ourselves for Jesus and be zealous for him. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for Jesus, his example. We thank you that... uh, As some would say today, he was real, he was weeping, he was wailing over those people who would be lost. May you give us your heart in these matters, whether it's family or friends. Help us to be knowledgeable, open doors for us to speak. Maybe we walk through them when we are given opportunities to be that witness. Help us to be those martyrs, those witnesses, the ones who are willing to lay down our lives for the sake of those we don't even know that they might enter into heaven where God will say, blessed are you. Enter into your rest. Father, we thank you for your word. It's all we can say. We ask for your blessing upon us this following week. Pray that you would provide for us opportunity and may we grab hold of it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen.